Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. It's my delight to bring to the Morning Glory Project today Pam Houston. Along with her dedication as a writer and a coach to other writers, Pam Houston has had a long love affair with nature and has been a passionate and appreciative protector of it. Her memoir, Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country, is a love story to her ranch that she calls home and the bounty of beauty that she's found all over the world. The memoir won the 2019 Colorado Book Award, the High Plains Book Award, and the Reading the West Advocacy Award. Her most recent work is Airmail. Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place, co-authored with Amy Irvine. She's also the author of Cowboys Are My Weakness and my personal favorite, Sighthound, as well as four other books of fiction and nonfiction, all published by W.W. Norton. She lives at 9,000 feet above sea level on a 120-acre homestead near the headwaters of the Rio Grande and teaches at UC Davis in the Institute of American Indian Arts. She's the co-founder and creative director of the literary nonprofit Writing by Writers and the fiction editor at the environmental arts journal Terrain.org. Pam Houston, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Betsy. I'm happy to be here. So Pam, there are about a hundred ways I want to talk to you, but I want to kind of come at it through the lens of that your kind of determination is what I like to talk about because you're determined in several different areas that I find fascinating. And anybody who reads your books would know these, so I'm not telling tales out of school, but you're a survivor of an abusive household. You are a writer who has endured multiple <laughs> years of supporting yourself as a writer and a teacher of writing. You're a lover of the earth and recently I read on Facebook that you're also a COVID long hauler, they call. So I think of these things that you're enduring for so long. And I'm wondering how, if you see yourself as a survivor in those ways. I guess so. You know, I, um, you know, my life is, uh, is, is so multiple, you know, that I have a hard time defining myself as one thing. Um, I definitely survived my childhood home, which was violent and uh, drunk and abusive. There's no question about that. Um, and interestingly, you know, the Trump administration re resembled it <laughs> a lot. And so I've been revisiting a lot of those abuses. 
You know, I think that's happening to a lot of folks. I, I know that that's true for me. I came from a home not dissimilar to yours, and and at every rally, I I I could practically look for extended family relatives behind him, <laughs> and <laughs> certainly his behavior uh, is reminiscent of what I know. So it seems like that that sparked up for you too. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, my father broke my femur when I was four. You know, that's kind of the the defining moment of my childhood, although there was plenty of other violence, uh, physical and sexual before and after that. And, you know, um, it occurred to me at some moment prior to the election, which I was this last election, the 2020 election, which I was fighting in and for, you know, right up to the last seconds in terms of you know, writing airmail and then trying to get airmail out in the world and then also phone banking and posting and doing all the things we were all doing. You know, it occurred to me at that time that those of us who were raised by malignant narcissists uh, are especially suited for this battle that, you know, we're kind of hopefully seeing the tail end of, but I don't know, you know, um, this battle against fascism and this battle against hate and division, you know, we we know how someone like Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell or William Barr thinks, you know, cause we grew up in, in his house or mm -hmm. I did. And I think those of us who are survivors who have become, you know, thrivers, uh, which I feel I have, you know, even at this moment when I'm in pain from post COVID stuff. And I still feel like, you know, it's an astonishment that I got out of that house and I, went on to do everything I had dreamed of, you know, which was write and teach and travel, you know, my life is a miracle. So it's hard for me to say like, I'm a survivor, you know, as, if that's the only word I get, <laughs> you yeah, know, you have lots of words, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm definitely a survivor. And, uh, you know, I think survivor has, you know, of course, as I know, you know, really positive connotations too. And, I intend to survive this COVID long haul stuff and I intend to survive, you know, the death throes of this presidency and hopefully the death throes of the powers that be that keep it, you know, have kept it in place this long, mm -hmm. you know, the sort of end of white supremacy and the end of uh, this misogyny and racism that's, you know, keeping that party together. So um, I feel like a good soldier, you know, at the <laughs> moment. Uh, and the various um, ways that I soldier on, uh, you know, are quite specific. As you mentioned, I, I'm teaching at the Institute of American Arts. I'm doing everything I can to amplify you know, formally unamplified voices. I'm, you know, getting my students' books in the, to the world is a is a huge um, part of how I spend my weeks and days in terms of, you know, not only helping them to see what's great about them and lean into those things as writers, but also, you know, trying to get them noticed in the world with whatever platform I have. Well, I think you, you and I share that value that the value of people's stories getting out into the world is so important more it's always 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 been important but it but it i'm more acutely aware of how important it is and that it's our stories that are our uniquely human quality and and sharing them is how we build the bridges to each other 
it seems to me. And so it seems like this is a, a crucial time for bridges. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think stories are so important and it's how we have empathy for each other. And, you know, I feel so sorry for people who who haven't dedicated their lives to hearing the stories of others. You know, I feel so lucky in that regard that that's the way I make my living, <laughs> you know. Mm. And then also, you know, the environment. I mean, if we get through this this regime and if we do manage to tamp down the fascistic impulses that we have seen, you know, bloom so so unapologetically over the last four years, um, you know, we have a climate catastrophe on our hands. Um, right. That's that's next in the queue, and um, and I think especially writing Airmail with Amy, who who has been, you know, an environmental activist all her life. You know, she worked for environmental organizations. She's on the front lines of all that. You know, that has kind of opened some of those doors for me to be an advocate for the earth, not only in terms of my writing, but, you know, in terms of my activism, like putting my body out there or putting my myself out your there. time and your energies yeah. and all of those things that you know lots of us became political to a new level because of what's happened in the last five years and it seems that that's been the case for you too you know in all of your writing that i've read over the years your love for nature and animals is it's 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 on every single page in nearly every word you write in one way or another but it seems that you've turned that to a more political, politically active phase of your life more recently. Does that feel accurate to you? Yeah. Um, you know, a, a few things happened. And uh, I mean, I, the big motivator was, you know, was Donald Trump. I mean, that was the rise of Donald Trump. And then especially the Kavanaugh hearings, like those were two moments in my lifetime that, you know, really made me think, okay, you know, we're the ones we've been waiting for as the, as the saying goes, you right. know, like I felt no choice, but to become more political in my writing. I, you know, I grew up in the time of minimalism. I went to grad school in the time when you weren't allowed to put any emotion words on the page and, you know, you weren't allowed ever, ever, ever to tell anyone how they should think. And, you know, those are all good writing pieces of advice that I, that I still give in certain situations. But I also think, you know, um, I think we're, you know, we've got the, our foot on the pedal and we're headed over the cliff. And so um, I feel it's interesting because every now and then I will check myself, you know, every now and then I'll get like seven death threats in a week on Facebook or whatever. And mm -hmm. I'll think, am I doing this wrong? You know, <laughs> like, um, or maybe that's because you're doing it right. Yeah. I think, well, have I gotten too political? Like, have I lost the nuance of my work or, you know, have I uh, abandoned my old values? I really do. I check myself and I ask myself those questions. And the fact is, no, you know, I have, I have grown into, my much more political voice absolutely naturally and intuitively in response to what's happening in the world. And, you know, maybe I know this is a pipe dream, but maybe things will kind of 
calm down and justice will be served and you know the green new deal will go into effect and and then maybe I'll retreat from it but it feels absolutely essential right now it's been true for me it's involuntary right. in a way in that not involuntary like I'm forced into it but involuntary in that it's an of course i i i just remember this feeling i, I had an illness early in the in the spring of uh, 2017 that put me in the hospital. And I re remember laying there and watching this monstrous human on a TV when I finally got out, you know, was in a room that I had a TV. And I just remember thinking, I cannot die. I cannot leave the planet in this kind of shape for my kids and future grandkids. I just can't do it. <laughs> it, it felt like, it didn't feel like I was enlisting. It felt like I'd been drafted and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in, yeah. into that army that you're talking about. Yeah, you know, we, I keep hearing this phrase like pre-COVID novel and post-COVID novel, and <laughs> I hear those words floating around these days. And I think we could say the same thing, you know, like the pre-Trump novel and the post-Trump novel or the, you know, pre-George Floyd novel and the post-George Floyd novel, you mm -hmm. know, like we're in a world that we can no longer ignore. You know, um, I, I I feel like, you know, I got out of my father's house alive, which was kind of a miracle because um, he was pretty hell bent on killing me. I mean, you break a kid's femur. That's that's big stuff. And uh, and I got out and I had 40 years of, you know, the most amazing, privileged, lucky life. And then Trump came along <laughs> and and I was back in my father's house, except I was back there with my 330 million brothers and sisters and, um, you know, and as an adult it's with agency to act. Mm. And it seemed, um, it seemed, it, it just seemed impossible not to act and not to speak, you know? And um, I think the Trump presidency and how narrowly we avoided fascism, if in fact we have, and, and COVID itself you know, and the kind of the knowledge that our government doesn't care at all, whether we live or die, you know, that's, that's a hard lesson for white people anyway, you know? Yeah. It's funny that you say it that way, because when I say this to friends of color, they say, yeah, we knew that. Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> we of knew that. They They're the canaries in this horrible mind shaft in right. a way. And I think, you know, the, one of the things it's made me understand this last year and these last four years is that all the things I used to think, you know, about career or trajectory or whether I'm doing it right, according to the New York publishing scene, or, you know, all these things that now seem so ridiculous, you know, um, I have two jobs, you know, one is to use my voice. Toni Morrison said, you know, if you have some power, it's your job to reach over the ledge and pull somebody up to the power you have. And, you know, I don't have a lot of power. I have a little bit of power, but I want to do that. I want to dedicate my life to speaking out when I see injustice and brutality towards humans or animals or the earth. And I want to reach down and pull up some of these young or early in career writers up to, up to the level I am, because that's what I can do. And, that, and that's that's what makes me think of you as a writer's writer in that way, that you don't close the door behind you. You bring 
people in forward. It's, it's part of what I've admired about your work for as long as I have. And, you know, Pam, I wonder too, the, the question that I ask every guest is because I, th- I think that when you're living it, it's hard to know this, but I, I ask you to reflect a little bit and think some people that go through what you went through in your early life are, are just broken by it. And here you are a survivor of it. And I'm wondering, what do you think you, how do you think you got through that? Hmm. What's different about you or what choices did you make or, or decisions or practices, or what do you think pulled you from that four-year-old with the broken femur to this mature woman who's bringing people up from behind her? Two things. Um, Two things for certain. One was a woman named Martha Washington who um, came to babysit me while I was still in the hospital. So I met her when I was two days old and she kind of stayed around in the periphery of my life until she died when I was 20. And, you know, she was the opposite of my parents in every way. She was consistent. Um, She was kind of a tough love person, but it was consistent. You know, she was like my babysitter. She was like, we, we, we didn't have enough money for me to call her a nanny and she wasn't a nanny. I mean, certainly not an au pair, (laughs) (laughs) definitely not an au pair. She didn't live with us or anything, but I spent a lot of time with her and she taught me to read when I was two and a half. So she gave me that, you know, she taught me to swim. She taught me to ride a bike. She taught me to hold open doors for my elders she taught me generosity is its own reward. She, in her own quiet way, taught taught me that my parents, you know, weren't the whole world and um, that I would get out one day, you know. Uh, hmm. So she was the great gift of my childhood. You know, she was everything that my parents weren't. And, uh, you know, my parents tried to keep me away from her a lot uh, because they could see all that, you know, but but she persisted. (laughs) Um, So that was, that was one thing. And then the other thing was just mother nature, you know, my other mother. Uh, (laughs) um, And that was true from when I was little, when we lived in, you know, deep in suburbia where mother nature existed in these tiny remnant woods pockets that were maybe seven acres big, you know, or the Jersey shore where my parents and I used to go when I was a kid. And um, it was always true that I found solace and mothering and loving, you know, from mother nature. And to this day, I, I just started saying this on the deep Creek tour because it's just one of those things that you do that you do and you think, Oh, everybody does that, but it turns out not. Uh, even now when I'm feeling really sad or scared or hurt, um, I will, even in Creed where I live, where it's cold, you know, I will like bundle up in a down coat and I will go out and lay on the ground, like lay on the ground under a tree. Like I'll curl up like an animal under a tree Hmm. and I'll just lay there till I feel better. And, you know, again, that's one of those things I really never told anyone until I went, started talking about that stuff on the deep Creek tour. And 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 what happens to you in that, in that curled up on the dirt moment. I feel mothered, you know, <laughs> I feel, mm. I, I feel held, you know, I feel held and I feel comforted and I feel 
I feel better. You know, it's like, um, uh, it's my cure. And, and, and I guess it was like my secret cure, but now it's not a secret anymore because I thought maybe it could help someone else. The good news is it's a secret you didn't have to keep. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is lovely. You know, Pam, one of the things that I find interesting about the writing that you do is your life and my life bear very little resemblance to one another's other than the fact that we we both write, you know, we're both female white Americans and we write. And that's the, I think that's the extent of our commonality in, in the obvious ways, but I'm still able to find myself in your stories, even though your life has been so different than mine. And I once heard you say, and I'll paraphrase it, it's pretty close, but you said everything I write is true and 80% of it actually happened. And I, I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about writing true, what you mean by that. Sure. Um, you know, I was trained as a fiction writer and now I write a lot of nonfiction in addition to fiction because my fiction is extremely autobiographical, uh, I've never been that clear on the distinction between the two. You know, I have written essays about the difference between the two or the similarities between the two. Like it's kind of a koan. It's kind of a lifelong koan for me. And part of the reasons it remains interesting to me is because I've never believed that language can represent reality in any sort of a complete or ultimate way. I think we wouldn't be in love with it if it could. I, I don't think it would engage us for our whole lifetimes if we could just write what actually happened. You know, if we could, it would be like cutting the lawn. And I think, you know, I think Linguistics 101 tells us that meaning occurs at the junction of code and context and context is always changing. And so we reach after meaning, but we never quite get it. And, um, and, and, you know, then there's the failure of memory and then there's the failure of desire and then there's the failure of language. I mean, there's, there's so many ways that, um, that language cannot represent what really happened a hundred percent, even if the writer is making the very best effort to make it do so. And that's kind of where I've come down on that whole divide. Like if I'm writing something that's called nonfiction, I'm going to make my very best effort to represent what really happened. And if I'm writing something that's called fiction, I am more free to let the story carry the memory to a different place. But, um, but I think the truth, like, you know, the capital T, big T, we used to say, you know, small T, big T, I think truth lives for literary writers anyway, inside the metaphor, you know, and the metaphor isn't even trying to be accurate. You know, it's trying to be emotionally multiple, you know, in the same way the experience was. I want to shift just a little bit to this new and beautiful book, Airmail, that you and Amy Irvine wrote. And it's what they'd call an epistolary, right? It's it's letters that the two of you wrote back and forth to one another during the COVID era. Tell me just, it, well, before I ask you to tell me about it, would you be willing to read just your first letter to Amy? And it's it's the first letter to her. It's actually the first letter in the book other than, than the introduction. 
Sure. So this was a letter from March 28th, 2020. Hi, Amy. Greetings from the east-facing side of the Great Divide. One of the things you and I have in common during this pandemic is that unlike most Americans who are sheltering in place, we have unrestricted access to vast parcels of the natural world right out our door. If I step down off my back porch and hop my fence, I am in the Rio Grande National Forest. If I keep walking, in a few hours I'll enter the Wimanuch Wilderness. And after a couple of days, I'll get to the San Juan National Forest, four million acres altogether. I can wander around for weeks up there, especially now that the tourists have been discouraged, without seeing another soul. In this way, we are the opposite of those Italians singing from their balconies. We chose these lives. We were lucky and worked hard and cashed in our white middle-class privilege precisely so we would have unrestricted access to wild country. And even COVID, which is threatening to shut down the entire world, won't keep us out. An amazement, really, as I watch all the parks, state and national around the country closing. We can't go to a restaurant or to Paris, but we can still lose ourselves in the wilderness we love. I've been thinking about the wildlands that get more use than ours, that grapple with a constant onslaught of people and are suddenly emptied of them. I picture the animals whispering to one another. Do you think they're all dead down there? Then I picture them linking arms and dancing around the campfire. I hear the trees bending toward one another and singing. You might have seen the article in Forbes with the headline, Coronavirus Lockdown Likely Saved 77,000 Lives in China Just by the Reduction of Air Pollution. For all the suffering, heartache, grief, and economic catastrophe this virus will cause, I can't help but wonder what reevaluation of our priorities might come out of it. Will we learn we don't need so many choices? Will we get better at being instead of doing? Will we remember that we are actually nature and neither its master nor the beneficiary of its charms? Will clean air, just as one example, seem like a thing worth staying home for? Be well, Pam. I want to comment on that piece and then ask you about the origins of this book because it's quite touching. I've been saying throughout this, not only just the COVID era of 2020, but the whole last four years, saying that I keep asking myself two questions. Who do I want to be in this time? And what is the lesson I'm supposed to be learning in this time? And it seems like this book this conversation that you and Amy have with one another is exploring those things. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing I've said every day, you know, what are the lessons? What am I learning today? And I think it's so important that we don't let this go by. You know, if, if the vaccine rolls out and everything goes well and next summer we're back, you know, having, lunch, long lunch with our girlfriends telling stories. Like, I don't want to have missed what this taught me, you know? And, and one of the things it taught me was 
you know, how many things I don't need, you know, when the, when the pandemic began and just to, you know, fess up, like I'm so good at travel. I love travel and I'm so good at it. And I thought to myself, God, am I even a person if I'm not like negotiating airports and, you know, parking one rent-a-car in the lot of one airport and flying off to get in my next rent-a-car and figuring that all out, you know, like, and I mean, now it seems like a ridiculous question. Like, of course I'm a person, but that was so much part of my self-definition. I worried that if it went away, I wasn't here anymore. And, and like, that's just one tiny example of so many. But I think there's, I think there's millions of those going on. Everything from people questioning whether they need to color their hair anymore right. to, you know, to, do we really need 15 or 30 or 90 different kinds of sodas on the shelf in the grocery store to, you know, all of the, the kinds of things that we've gotten inured to totally now are to be questioned. Do I need my cheese to fly across the ocean? <laughs> do I need my cheese to fly across the ocean? There's a question for the era, isn't there? So Tell me, as, as we come to a close here, can you tell me how this book came about between, because if I understand it well, you and Amy did not know one another before you started writing letters to each other. And these were, now were these emails or were they handwritten letters or how did it work? They were emails because given her post office and my post office, we would still be waiting <laughs> for the letters to come. Um, but uh they were letters in that, you know, we opened a document and sat down for five or six hours and wrote a letter. You know, they weren't like tossed off emails, of course. They were right. they, they were a considered correspondence. The conveyance was emails. So how, how did it come to be? It came to be because Orion Magazine called Amy and asked her to be part of a series called Together Apart, which where they were going to have two writers write to each other during the pandemic by way of keeping connected when we couldn't see each other. And they asked her who she wanted to write with. And early that day, we did not know each other. I blurbed her book, Desert Cabal. She read Cowboys Are My Weakness when she was just getting started. Like we knew each other's work and we knew each other's presence in the literature of the American West and also in environmental writing, but we had never met. Um, and she said me because, when Orion asked her, because just that morning she had posted something on Facebook about being in quarantine with her husband and daughter and how if she had to be locked up, you know, those were good choices. And it was worded much more beautifully than that. And I reposted it. I shared it. And then after I shared it, I thought to myself, you don't even know her. And that was really personal. So I sent her a Facebook message that I said, hey, if you want me to take, I posted it because I was really moved by it. But if you want me to take it down, I'm happy to, because I realized it was kind of personal. And she said to me, oh, Pam, it's all personal now, isn't it? Mm. And that, you know, I could, even as I repeat it now for like, you know, the manyth time, I can feel it. Like I can feel it in my chest when I say it. And I thought, you know, many things among them, I want to know her, you know, like, right. and also that's true. And, um, and so we were off and running and we wrote the letters we had to for Orion 
which was about 3,500 words, and then very quickly realized that we had so much more to say to each other. And with no thought of it being a book, just thinking we are forging a friendship here and a sisterhood. We believe in the same things. We want to fight the same way for the things we love. These letters are the thing that's keeping us sane here in April of COVID. And um, so we just kept writing. Hmm. And then we got about 35,000 words in, about 10 times that original amount. And that was when we said, hey, you know, this might be something. Maybe this is something. It's sort of a cross between old-fashioned pen pals and sort of Match.com for writers. Like (laughs) you got hooked up (laughs) in in a strange and beautiful and wonderful way. It's true. We looked up the word for um, for a female bromance, which is a womance. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking about that. It's so funny that you say that because I was thinking about that today, and and I was trying to think what would be the the female equivalent. So a womance, a womance. <laughs> I like it. I, I I'm still working on it, though. I'll have to see if there's a better one. Well, Pam, this this book is sort of the the medicine. I needed to read. So I want to thank you and Amy as well for creating it. Um, I've just been enjoying it this week. And during these bone-wearying times, it's lovely to be in the embrace of your conversation. I thank you for your, your time today, but also for the stories that you've shared, the love that you've shared for your Mother Earth, as well as the animals that you feature in your gorgeous books because they always move me. So thank you so much for all that you do and and for being a part of the Morning Glory Project. I so appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on, Betsy. It's been nice talking. When I reflect on my conversation with Pam Houston, I've got a braid of things going on, a bunch of things woven together. One is that, of course, I've been a, a fan of Pam's writing for a very long time. I find it moving and inspiring, and her life is, on the surface, very different than my own. She's athletic and outdoorsy and has been a river rafter and a rock climber and an adventurer in a lot of ways, and that wouldn't be how anyone described my life. Although I love nature and find it beautiful, I haven't. I haven't ridden the rapids, (laughs) let's just say it that way. But underneath that surface, I find a lot of kindredness with Pam's stories because they're about the heart, they're about the love of nature and of animals, they're about protecting that, being inspired by it, they're about observation. The other braid, the other piece of the braid that I think of is Pam's advocacy for the land, the earth, the waters, the skies, and that that's been a lifelong quest for her, but that in recent years, it's become a more politically active one. I think that lots of us have been newly inspired in recent years to be more active, partly because either we saw atrocities that we couldn't tolerate or heard the kinds of voices that we couldn't bear, or because the risk became too acute and too vivid. So lots of us are finding our inner activist these days. I know I have. I never thought I'd write hundreds of letters to Congress people, to senators, to voters, to business leaders. But I have. 
What activates you? What gets you moving toward causes that matter to you? Sometimes we need to sit out, but sometimes we need to join in. And the third piece of the braid in my reflection about Pam is thinking about her collaboration with Amy Irvine and how that gave another kind of voice to what she'd done as a writer for a very long time. That writing, storytelling, is not just a monologue, it's a conversation. And even if there's only one writer, it's a conversation with the reader. And that's what I'm trying to do here. Not only a conversation with my guest, but a conversation with you, with someone who's listening. Now, it's a conversation where only I am talking at the moment, but you're welcome to share your thoughts. You can go to themorninggloryproject.com and leave us comments. You can write reviews on the various formats where you find this podcast, and you can let us know what you think. But meanwhile, (laughs) wherever you are, I hope that you've found little nuggets of inspiration in this story and that those little nuggets help you to bloom.